is something that that came up because we're going to talk a little bit about life today in this message. The title of this message is Why the Blood? Why the Blood? Well, as as a young person coming up, especially uh, people who are not churched now, I imagine in my mind as a kid, listening to hymns, especially old hymns, like what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood. Why do we have so much emphasis on some blood? And how is that supposed to do anything to cleanse you? <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense to a kid's mind, right? Or, or I suppose to a non-Christian mind, what does blood have to do with anything with cleansing? So the Lord um, just gave me an idea a few days ago about the purpose of the blood. Well, let's think about life, what it means to be alive. And not really to, I don't mean to feel alive or to feel fulfilled. I mean to actually live, move, breathe, just be alive. What does that mean? There are six criteria for something to be considered living. And the first is that that thing is made of cells. Okay, so the smallest part of any living thing is a cell. We learned that in science, right? It's about sixth, seventh grade. A living thing has to be able to move. Okay, if it's just, if it doesn't move, it's not living. <laughs> so living things have to move. Living things use energy. All right, so they obtain and they use energy. Living things grow and develop. So if you're not growing, if it's not growing, it's not living. Living things reproduce. They have the ability to reproduce. Living things adapt and respond to their environment. Those are the criteria I searched and discovered <laughs> for living things. They're made of cells. They move. They obtain and use energy. They grow and develop they reproduce, and they respond to their environment. Well, in the human body, think about a woman's fertilized egg, the ovum. And from the start, from fertilization, the ovum is called a cell. And it begins to split. It reproduces itself. It, re it splits into different parts. So that's one area we know it's living. Well, two. It's a cell and it reproduces, right? It uses energy from the mother and it grows and develops. Okay, I think our criteria, we're meeting that criteria, right? It uses energy, it grows and develops, it reproduces, and it responds to its environment, right? So whatever the mom eats, the baby eats, and it responds. It moves around and it responds to the daddy's voice and light and dark. So... If you are pregnant and that's what they call embryo, doesn't look like a baby yet on an ultrasound, is it still living? Yes. So does life start from conception? So every young person in here, listen, life starts when an egg is fertilized by sperm. Make no mistake about it. No matter who tells you any different, it's a baby. It's a life. It's alive. Okay? So abortion is killing a baby. Am I correct? Yes. No matter what you think about it, right or wrong, 
you know, your right to choose, it's still killing a baby, right? That's what it is. Amen. So let's look at other things. Is water living? Water. Is it? Okay. Does water meet these criteria? Does water move without an outside force acting upon it? Does water grow and develop? Does water reproduce? Scientists say water is not living. I thought water was living too, but let's listen to why. Water, it says, why does God refer to water as a living thing? Let's look at John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he used water as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Okay. So the Holy Spirit is like water. What does water do? Water sustains life. You cannot live, nothing can live without water. And no spirit can live without the Holy Ghost. Okay? Water sustains life. It gives us life, keeps us alive. Life is precious to God. How do we know that life is precious to God? We know because God created it. In the creation process, God first created an environment and everything to sustain life before he made life. He gave us everything we needed before he even put a person in, in the place. Okay? So let's go to Genesis 1 verse 9, no, yeah, Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, gathered the waters, and he called them seas, and he saw it was good. This is God putting everything into place before he made a man. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants, yielding seed and fruit um, on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. It was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind with seed in them. And God saw it was good. There was evening and morning, and that was the third day. He created everything we needed before the man was there. Are vegetation and seed-bearing plants alive? Yes, yes. They grow, they reproduce, they start as cells, they change according to their environment, they move, they meet the cr criteria of living things, plants, vegetation, right? Genesis 1, 20 through 23. God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw, oh, this is good. God blessed them. He blessed 
the sea creatures, and he blessed the birds, right? And he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and morning the fifth day. So God spoke well over the fish, over the birds. He said, be fruitful. What does that mean, be fruitful? It means to multiply, but why did he say be fruitful and multiply? Reproduce, be productive, be productive, do something, <laughs> do something, right? So if we are in, the, in Christ and we find ourselves unproductive, then we are not fruitful. The blessing of God says be fruitful, be productive, and then multiply. Make more like yourself. Multiply. This is the vision of the Life Church. To be fruitful through multiplication, discipleship. Multiplying, making more like ourselves, right? So that we can fill up the earth where we are, right? With more, with more of ourselves. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's go to Genesis 1.24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw it was good. Well, let's think about the earth, the cattle, the beasts of the field. Did God breathe the breath of life into the beasts of the field? He did not. What did he say? He said, earth bring forth animals. In my mind, animals just start coming up out of the earth. He <laughs> said, earth bring forth animals. They came up. They were walking around and doing what animals do. God did not breathe into them the breath of life, right? But do animals and insects and birds and fish have blood in them? Are they alive? Yes, they are living beings, right? Now we reach the pinnacle of creation, the height of creation. We go to Genesis 1, 26 through 31. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle. Yes, earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them by saying, prosper reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree. I give them to you for food. To all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes, I give whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. 
So did God intend originally for us to eat animals? Not originally. He said, I give you every seed bearing plant, everything that grows from the ground. I give you and all the animals for food, right? So God did not say eat animals from the very beginning. God looked over everything he made and he said, oh, it's good. It's so very good. What I did was just good. We can relate to that, right? Like if you cook something and you really like it after it's done, you man, I did good. That was good. <laughs> you know, if you worked on a project and it come out su successfully, you're like, yes, I am the man. That was good, right? That's God, what God said when he made it, when he made human beings, he said, oh, this is good. God gave man authority over every living thing on the earth, over plants, over trees, over insects, over animals, over fish, and over birds. God pronounced a statement of goodwill toward them by saying, be fruitful and multiply, so much so that you fill up the earth and it was good. Why was the creation of man the pinnacle of creation? Why, why is man the top, the summit of creation? There's one significant difference between the creation of every other thing and the creation of man. One significant difference. Let's turn to Genesis 2 and 7. This is from the Amplified Bible. Then the Lord God formed, that is, he created the body of man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, an individual complete in body and spirit. And no other creation did God breathe the breath of life into him so that he became a living spirit. God formed the man and breathed his own breath into man. He didn't do that for any other creature. Now we said that animals have blood. They're alive. And we know that the first people were formed by God. They had blood and they were alive. God created us all. He said, all of us are good. And God said that blood is so important and so, and so precious to him that it must be used very carefully, not trivially. Okay? The blood is so important that we can't take it lightly. Okay? Um, let's look at Le Leviticus 17 and 10. And I will turn my face against anyone, whether an Israelite or a foreigner living among you, who eats blood in any form. I will excommunicate him from his people, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given you the blood to sprinkle upon the altar as an atonement or a payment for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement because it is the life. Okay? So God is talking to the Israelites, and he's, this is after the Ten Commandments, and God is beginning to give them rules to live by. And he tells them, don't eat anything that has blood in it. Nothing that has blood in it. Because the life of that thing is in its blood. And if you do eat anything with blood in it, then you have to go outside of the camp. You are excommunicated from the camp. 
Now, I was reading a book um, by a Christian uh, medical doctor, and it's called The Chemistry of the Blood. And this is what he says. Is blood a living organism? Is blood alive? Is it living? It is according to the word of God. God said life is in the blood. Animals have blood and they are called forth out of the ground by God. And people have blood and they were made alive from the breath of God coming into them. And according to Dr. DeHaan, he says the breath of God put something in man that made him alive. That something was blood. It must have been. It could be nothing else. For we have already shown that the life is in the blood. And so when life was added by the breath of God, he imparted blood to that lump of clay in the shape of a man. And man became a living soul. Adam's body was of the ground. His blood was the separate gift of God. For God is life and the author of life. Amen. Now let's uh, consider some sacrifices that were made in the Bible. Because God did um, call for sacrifices in the Old Testament to be made to worship him. So we're going to consider Cain and Abel. Cain, of course, was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd or herdsman. And the Bible says, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to God. But in contrast, so we think in the course of time, so when he felt like it, time went on in the course of time, Cain said, okay, I'm bring an offering to God. Then it says, but, which means this is the opposite, in contrast, Abel brought the Lord of the finest of the firstborn of his flocks and even the fat portion, even the good parts. Now, the fat portion, the Bible says, are the good parts. No, doctors tell us don't eat fat. But, you know... When I was growing up and maturing in my 20s, I, I, I made a vow for a time. I'm not, I'm not eating any red meat. I'm not eating anything with fat in it. Everything was nasty. Nothing tasted good. That's when I discovered that fat makes stuff taste good. <laughs> he said, even the fat portions Abel brought to him. And it says, the Lord had respect for Abel's offering but no respect for Cain's. Cain became so enraged that he killed his brother, right? So if we look at Genesis, uh, not Genesis 4, 9 through 12, I'm going to start with um, verse 10. He says, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's innocent blood is crying out to me from the ground for justice. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's shed blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. It will resist producing good crops for you. You shall be a fugitive and a vagabond roaming aimlessly on the earth in perpetual exile without a home, a degraded outcast. Abel's blood was alive even after his death because it called out from the ground for justice. Because he had shed innocent blood, Cain was cursed with bad crops, homelessness, fugitive, and he's an outcast. Another sacrifice to consider is that of Noah. Noah made a sacrifice after the flood. 
And when he and his family came out of the ark, um, he made an altar. Let's go to Genesis 8, starting at verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. So Cain's shedding of blood caused a curse on the ground. Noah's shedding of blood caused the curse to be reversed, right? Because he said, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, what did he say? Be fruitful <laughs> and increase in number and fill the earth. That's God's word, isn't it? That's his blessing. Be fruitful multiply, fill the earth. We are blessed, right? We are productive. We should be multiplying. We should be filling the earth, right? The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given it into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So we see that this sacrifice reversed the curse. And now God says, you can also eat the animals along with the plants, right? So that blood sacrifice, it does a lot, right? That blood is alive, calls out when it's shed innocently. It can cause a curse to come upon you or the land, your surroundings. It can cause a curse to be reversed on, on you or on your land or your surroundings. The blood is a powerful, powerful thing. But you must not eat meat that has blood in it. Okay, this is verse 4 of chapter 9. And verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood, for your lifeblood, human life, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too i will demand an accounting for the life of another human being so lives that are taken innocently god demands an account it's not frivolous it's not frivolous god demands an accounting for every life animal and human Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. God says it over and over and over and over again. Be fruitful, multiply in the earth, right? Noah's sacrifice broke the curse on the ground that Adam caused. Another example of a sacrifice and the power of the blood is seen in Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go out of Egypt. He wanted to keep slaves. So God said, here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every household of the Egyptians. This is God talking to Moses. When I do this, 
Pharaoh is going to let you all go. And this is how I want you to prepare. So for anybody who doesn't know, Moses kept going to the king saying, you have to let us go to worship the Lord. The king kept saying, okay, I'll let you go. And then the king would change his mind. And then the Lord would send a plague or a curse upon the people until the king said, okay, I'll let them go. And then they went through this nine times. And then on the 10th time, God said, told Moses, he said, okay, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt, right? And after I do this, because this is even going to happen in the king's house, after I do this and he finds that his firstborn is dead, he's going to let you all go. So we're going to go to Exodus 12, 5 through 13. The animals you choose, God says, to prepare a sacrifice before I do this. God tells Moses, okay, prepare a sacrifice. And he says, the animals you choose must be a year old, males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So if you're here on Wednesdays, we know that God is in the details. So did God say take a, a cat or a dog? No, he said, he said, sheep or goats. He said on the 14th day at twilight, right? 14th day of the month in the evening, we're going to do this, right? Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head and legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. Eat it, eat it is the Lord's Passover. So he gave them specific instructions on what to do. He said, okay, you're going to only take a sheep or a goat. It has to be a year old. You have to do it on the 14th of the month in the evening. Um, eat these certain things with it and be ready to move, right? And put the blood over the top and over the sides. Now we, sh we learned that the blood caused a curse. The blood lifted a curse. Let's see what the blood is going to do here, right? On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both the people and the animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So because the animals were sacrificed and the blood was over and on the sides of the doors, the blood of the animals called out for mercy on behalf of the people inside. There is life in the blood. The innocent blood called out for justice with uh, Abel, right? And this blood is crying out for mercy. Moses was given the law in the course of time and God established different kinds of offerings to be brought to him. There were grain offerings, there were peace offerings, there were sin offerings, there were burnt offerings. God selected certain men to function as priests 
So he set apart some men to function as priests, and their job was to take the blood of the sacrificed animal and place it on the entrance of the temple and on what we call the horns of the altar. So in old churches, there was an altar up here. This is for all the kids who didn't grow up in traditional church. They don't know really what an altar is. <laughs> there is an altar in the front of the church. And as I, when I was a child, you didn't touch the altar unless you were praying or taking communion. You did not touch the altar. But on these altars, there was something as the, in the, this Old Testament altar. There was, you know, a horn of an animal sticks out. So there was a horn on the altar. And the priest would put blood on the horns of the altar because that was their assignment. That's what God had told them to do, right? The animals suffered the consequences of the sin of the people and the blood of the animal cried for mercy in the place of the person. But man would continue to sin and sacrifice would have to be made again and again. So if somebody was bringing an offering to worship God or if they had sinned, they would sacrifice their animal, give, the, give it to the priest, and, or the priest would sacrifice it out in front of the temple, and then they would put the blood on there. And that blood would cry out for mercy for those people. And God would look at it, and he would forgive the people. They wouldn't be judged because of their sin. And so that was their job. And then the priest had to do this for himself, too. So he had to do it for himself. He had to do it for all the people in the community coming to the temple. So, you know, just like we do, we sin, we ask for forgiveness, we sin again, we ask for forgiveness. So this kept happening again and again and again. So animals kept having to be shed again and again and again. But God had a plan, right? God's plan was for Jesus to be born, right? We knew that Jesus was formed. He was there at the foundation or the creation of the earth. So God had a plan the whole time for Jesus to come. And he gave the animals as an example for what Jesus was to do, right? All right. So here we go. <laughs> Jesus, so God's plan was for Jesus to be born with his own, with God's own blood. So how do we know, how do, how do we say that Jesus was fully God and he, but he was fully human? How is that? So Jesus was born of Mary. Mary was normal, right? She was, she was a person. She was human. And he came through her. But, but he was supposed to be God. But he was human. If you know about biology and the baby that grows in the womb, the baby's blood and the mother's blood never mix. This is why moms who have HIV can birth a baby and the baby's well doesn't have it because the baby's blood and the mom's blood never mix. When we watch Maury Povich and they do the DNA test, who are they testing? Who's the father, right? <laughs> because the father's blood, the baby's blood is identified through the father, right? So when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and he breathed his spirit into her womb, and it was full of the Holy Spirit. It came, the blood of God came into the baby to be birthed through Mary, and her blood never mixed with his. This is how he is fully human and fully God. Amen? I thought that was like, what? 
Okay. <laughs> when I when I was studying that, I was like, oh man, that's really good. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> okay, now let's turn over to Hebrews. We see why Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, this is Jesus talking to God. He said, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. So Jesus is just waiting. They just send me, send me. I'll die for the people. I will do your will, right? So Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 10. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in agreement with the law. He said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, that law in the Old Testament, to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is why sacrifices are not made now, because Jesus came to do it once and for all. Amen. There is one more thing that you may not, may not have thought about by being alive, and it's, it's the word of God. Is the word of God alive? How do we know the word of God is alive? Hmm? <laughs> who, is, who, who else is also known, known as the word of God? Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And he is alive, right? So in Hebrews 4, it says, for the word of God is alive and is active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Somewhere else it says that every word of God is breathed, right? Is that in Peter? You know what I'm talking about? Every scripture is God breathed. That means the blood is even through all the scriptures, right? That blood that brings life. So the blood in the scripture, it can reverse a curse, it's in Timothy, is it? It's in Timothy, Pastor says. It can, it can cry out for, for mercy, right? The blood of the Spirit of God through all of the Scripture can do those things. Amen? Oh, my gosh. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who is that high priest? Jesus, who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. How do we know that Jesus understands our weaknesses? Because he was fully human. Because he was fully human. He understands our weaknesses. Now, when you go to a priest and you're Catholic or whoever else may have a priest or a priest in the Old Testament, you think every priest could understand every sin that the person was bringing sacrifices for? 
No, because he had not experienced everything that person had experienced. He hadn't done everything they had done. But Jesus says he empathizes with all of our experiences, right? Hallelujah. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.